For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, his uniquely born son, his one and only son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in the son is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the uniquely born, the one and only Son of God. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son has not seen life or will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This morning as we prepare to uh, study the word of God, but also to begin our communion service, we have just a few seconds of spiritual preparation, and then I'll open us in prayer. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful for, again, this wonderful nation that you have provided for us, that you have brought to us, constructed, that you have, in your way, provided We pray, Father, that we would continuously be not only thankful for your provision, but that we would be committed to you as our God. We ask for your blessing upon our service. In Jesus' name, amen. For our communion service this morning, I want to do something just a little bit different. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm Psalm 24. Psalm 24. You're going to be able to tell that I'm a frustrated pastor who lost two services last week, so I have to somehow fit these messages in along the way. As we consider the person of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we are going to examine several passages of Scripture beginning in Psalm 24. Uh, who was who was this person who went to the cross in our place as a substitute for us? Well, I think we're going to find out that he is the king of glory. Let's look at Psalm 24. And I'm going to read right... My intentions are to read straight through this psalm. Psalm 24. We see it's a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. And that is precisely what I was trying to express in the first service. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? In other words, who can approach him? Or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
someone who has righteousness. And of course, for us, it would be the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ and sins being confessed. We would be ceremonially pure. He who has has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the Lord of his deliverance, his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Speaking to the Lord there. Seven, lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors. Almost as if the Lord is approaching the gates, the doors of heaven. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. And then it asks this question in verse 10. Who is this King of glory? I think that's a marvelous question for us to ask as we approach the communion service this morning, as we approach the Lord's table. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. <clears throat> Let's turn now to John seventeen five. How does this King of glory become related To us. How does he fit into our picture? John 17, 5. John 17, 5 says, and this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to the disciples. He's in the upper room just before his betrayal. And the Lord is praying to the Father, speaking to the Father. And he says, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So, this King of glory is the second person of the Godhead who shares this glory with God the Father, the God of the universe. Let's go to John 1.14. John 1.14 says, we see that the Son is praying to the Father and addresses the Father as the person who has this glory. And in John 1.14 it says, and the word... And we have covered this before. The the Greek word here is logos. And the logos, the word of God, is also represented as the son of God. He is the word of God. He represents God. And so the logos here, the revelation of who who God the Father is, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this individual who is glory and has the same glory as the Father, shares that glory, 
has come to earth, and it says we beheld his glory. Now, how do we behold his glory? We behold his glory as a revelation of God the Father. So, in the Son, we see the Father, and we realize, and we have sort of a play on words here, the greatness of our God. We see God's glory through him. But this isn't, re- this isn't speaking of that brightness, that breaking forth of his glory. And we know the Father from what we observe in the Son. Now let's turn over a page or two to second, or excuse me, to John 2, verse 11. <clears throat> we know that this Son, this King of glory, has come to earth. And he is now going to begin to reveal himself. In John 2.11, he is going to miraculously, at a wedding service, wedding ceremony, he's going to turn water into wine. And it says that he manifested forth his glory. He was manifested by his glory. And it says his disciples believed on him. So it was in his actions with his disciples that he was he demonstrated who he was he demonstrated this glory and it was the fact that he could produce he could perform these miracles that demonstrated his glory in philippians 2 continue over to philippians 2 we now Understand that this king of glory is on earth and he has manifested himself through his ministry. And in Philippians 2, 7, and theologically we would say he is in the flesh or he is incarnate. And that's what the the word incarnate means. It means he's in the flesh, a Latin word. And... His glory, of course, his the blinding light, brilliance of his glory, is veiled. However, in his life, we're going to see that the words of grace and truth and his mighty works, those that it's through those that his glory is revealed and understood. So in Philippians 2... Verse 7, it says, But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And so it says here he uh, that he veiled who he was, that he... Uh, came, uh, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of the bondservant and coming in likeness of men so that his appearance was as a man. So his true glory here is veiled. He humbled himself even to the death of the cross. Let me read on down to, yes, verse 9. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. Now, he's going to the cross. 
He goes to the cross. We have his death and his burial. And in 1 Peter, let's turn back to 1 Peter 1.21, what happens to his glory? <clears throat> he has died on the cross. And for many, they believed that he truly was dead. And he died. So is this the end of his glory? Well, in 1 Peter 1.21, while it might seem that finally his glory is gone forever as he is laid in the grave, we read, but, excuse me, who through him, let me begin verse 20, it's easier. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, was manifested, was manifested in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the resurrection restores the hope of the disciples. It restores the hope of the disciples and reassures them of his glory, the glory that he has never lost. James helps us with that in James 2.1. In James 2.1, he reminds the believers in his epistle. He says, My brethren, James 2.1, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, our faith for him, what we believe. Our Lord Jesus Christ the one or the Lord of glory. We have an article here that says, that speaks in apposition, uh, the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this Lord Jesus Christ? We can almost ask. And the appositional phrase says, the one of glory without partiality. And so, James says that it's the Lord Jesus Christ who is risen, who is this glory. And then in Hebrews 1.13 back one more book back in Hebrews 1 actually 1 3 in Hebrews 1 3 we trace this glory to the author of Hebrews I'm not sure his who this was but he says in Hebrews 1 3 who this being Jesus Christ Jesus Christ being the brightness, this is the, we could even say, maybe a better translation there, the radiance. Jesus Christ, who being the radiance of his glory. Whose glory? God the Father. And the expressed image of his person, his nature, his being. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Who's doing this? This is the Son. God the, whole, God the Son is upholding the world, all things, by the spoken word, we could say here, of his power. After he, God the Son, had by himself purged our sins, and then he has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so we've come full circle. We start with this king of glory as represented in chapter 
24 of, of Psalms, Psalm 24, this king of glory, who comes to the earth, reveals the glory of his father to us. We believe, as the disciples did, as we see this revealed glory. And then he goes to the cross. He pays for our sins. This member of the Godhead, the second person of the Godhead, in his humanity, goes to the cross, pays for our sins, dies there, is buried, but he's resurrected. And it's this same Jesus who, again, we understand is the glory of the Father. And where is he? He has ascended. And back in Matthew, excuse me, back in Psalm, Psalm 24, it brings us full circle to who our Savior is, our Deliverer is. In Psalm 24, it says in verse 7, Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up your everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And that is who we celebrate now in our communion service. In our communion service, we understand that we have two elements. We have the elements of the bread, and also of the cup. The bread or the wafer that we have represents the Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity. He was true humanity, also undiminished deity, but it's in his true humanity that he lives a perfect life. He was impeccable. So he was qualified to go to the cross. And in going to the cross... He is qualified to pay the penalty for our sins. You know, very often we might ask, why does this second person of the Godhead, why does this member of the Trinity go to the cross? Go to the cross for us to pay for our sins. Sins that he, of course, resisted. And I suppose very easily or very quickly we could give Maybe three simple answers. Number one, it was God's plan. It was the Father's plan, and he was obedient to the Father's plan. Secondly, it was the only way. It was the only way that the sins of the world could be forgiven so that we might have an opportunity to have a relationship with God. And then finally, because he loved us. And it's because of that love that he goes to the cross and pays the penalty for our sins. Of course, the cup represents his spiritual work on the cross, his death. And it's during his separation that we say he has spiritual death, separation from the Father on the cross that we say he has his spiritual death. And it's at that time that the sins of the world are resolved. The Father resolves those sins 
with the Son. And between them, the sins of the world are set aside so that that barrier no longer exists. And this is our Lord's spiritual death on the cross. And so this morning, as we take the bread, as we call it, and the cup, we realize that we are truly observing this plan that God had for us. We understand that God is impeccable as he, God the Son is impeccable as he goes to the cross and that he accomplishes everything that needed to be done while he's on the cross. That there need be nothing else accomplished. It's simply a matter of believing. And for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we realize, truly realize, how simple it is. Simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. And at that moment, we have the imputed righteousness of God, and we are regenerated. We receive eternal life, so that we now have a different life, an eternal life, a life that allows us to live with God forever. And so this morning, as we prepare to uh, take the communion, I'll ask uh, the two ushers, uh, David and Bill, who are going to assist me this morning to come forward. And we'll take just another few seconds here for silent prayer. And then I'll ask David if he will please give thanks for the bread. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity to come before you um, and honor your son. Um, We're grateful and thankful for the work he did, the sacrifice he paid um, to uh, save us from the uh, bondage of sin. Uh, We ask now that you uh, bless this bread and and bring to mind... um, all the understandings of the the work he did on the cross and the and the sacrifice he made and we ask this in Jesus name amen it's our custom to hold the bread until all have been served Once more, as we consider the bread, we understand 
that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us as our substitute in our place. So that the same night, our Lord Jesus, when he was betrayed, the same night that he would be betrayed, took the bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This bread is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. I'll ask Bill Sen to please give the thanksgiving for the cup. Father, we thank you for the cup. We thank you that it represents our Lord's perfect work on the cross, that he redeemed us from the slave market of sin, that he provided unlimited atonement for not only for our sins, but for the sins of the entire world, and that through his work your perfect righteousness has been satisfied. And we thank you that through faith in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ that we have imputed, credited to our account his perfect righteousness and his eternal life. And we pray that as we take the cup that you would help us to focus on these truths. In Christ's name we pray. Again, it's our custom to hold the cup until all have been served. The cup of juice, of course, the red beverage, represents his blood. And it's his blood, and it is 
this beverage that represents his death on the cross. In the Bible, blood represents death. And so we say in him we have redemption through his blood, through his spiritual death, forgiveness of sins. And that's the importance of what we hold in our hand right now. So that in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have this uh, wonderful opportunity to remember truly the entire scope of our salvation. Not only who our Lord Jesus Christ was, so that he was qualified to go to the cross, but also the fact that while on the cross, he completely resolved the difficulty, the problem, the barrier of sin. And we also know that as we observe the Lord's the Lord's table, we understand that we do not have a Savior who has died and is in the grave, but we serve a risen Savior. We serve a Savior who is returning for us. And so this is also a time of praise as we remember that we look for him. We look for him in the sky, our Savior, who will come and take us unto himself. So we're thankful for this opportunity, Father. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're told that after the Passover, that our Lord Jesus Christ, then with his disciples, stood and sang a song. And so it's our custom to stand and sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, in your hymnal, page 258. This is our opportunity also as we uh, conclude our communion service to worship God in giving. And of course, we understand that we give from uh, an attitude of grace. Matter of fact, the Lord says, each one of you should give just as you purpose in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because the Lord loves a willing giver. And so this is our opportunity to worship our Lord in giving as we reciprocate in love to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we're thankful for the opportunity and we're thankful for the gifts. We pray, Father, that you would uh, bless us, help us to truly understand the significance of what we're doing as we reciprocate in love to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. <clears throat> This is our Independence Day or Independence Week service, I guess we could say. And in the first service, I talked uh, a little bit about the, the Declaration of Independence. Um, and I also have mentioned that this is generally, the day is traditionally celebrated on July the 4th, even though really the uh, the creation, the drafting took a while for the Declaration of Independence and then also 
the discussion within the Continental Congress, and then finally the actual signing of it took place over a period of time. And so even though we traditionally celebrate the holiday on July the 4th, uh, it is more than a day, and it's even more than just an event. It is truly the birth of a nation, and it takes place truly over a period of time. And we sometimes ask, well, what is that true meaning? Or at least I certainly have asked that. What is the true meaning of Independence Day? And how do we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ celebrate Independence Day? Well, I think for those of us who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's an opportunity for us once more to be grateful to the Lord for his sovereign hand in history. And I think we often forget just how involved God is in history. America, as a nation, is part of God's history. And we often use separate that word and say it's his story. History is his story. And I think America is a vital part of that history. At least it is for those of us who are Americans and believers, and we realize that we are truly blessed. In the Old Testament, one of the central parts of the uh, the blessings and cursings to Israel found in Leviticus 26 and also in Deuteronomy 28 through 30 was the attitude of the nation towards God. Whether they were blessed or whether they were cursed, and that's the word that's often translated, cursed, depending upon their attitude. Their attitude towards God determined whether they would remain as a sovereign nation or whether they would not, whether they would be blessed or whether they would be cursed. And I think America, as a free and independent, prosperous nation, falls into that same category. As long as we remember the Lord, as long as we are committed to him and we... uh, we understand that that is the foundation of our nation, then we will be blessed. You know, it's it's very often said, and I think it's absolutely true, God does not bless a nation based upon its unbelievers. Now, if it's a nation of unbelievers, then we have something entirely different. But the nation is not blessed upon the performance uh, is not the, the blessing of the nation is not based upon the performance of the unbelievers, but it's based upon the performance of its believers. And we've often heard it called a pivot. Uh, generally, the word is translated in the Old Testament, a remnant. The remnant of Israel or the remnant of a nation. And so, for the United States, we are dependent, we are dependent upon that remnant, the remnant of believers. And it's smaller than that. It's not just all those who are believers, but it's depending upon those who are obedient, who truly guard or keep God's word. And so it falls on our shoulders, I guess we could say. 
But the blessing that we have as a nation is one that's often taken for granted. But we possess what we have in this nation purely because of the grace provision of God. And we understand that in at least this church and many others, I believe, that we recognize that the blessing we have comes from those who serve in our military. That's the immediate source. But the ultimate source, of course, is our God. The Declaration of Independence is historical proof that the colonies, America at that time, began with a people that were truly devoted to God. I talked about the four references to God in the Declaration of Independence. The laws of nature and nature's God being endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. The supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions and the protection of divine providence. I've spoken of the first two. What I'd like to do is conclude here this morning with the last two. The closing paragraph of the Declaration of Independence says, We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world. And that always takes me back to Abram, who, in speaking to the Lord, this Theophanes, in Genesis 18.22, is pleading, I'll use the word pleading, he's bargaining you, we could say, for the lives of those in Sodom, for his nephew Lot, his wife and children. And he goes through this ascending order of numbers. Will you save them for 50? And he works his way all the way down to 10. And then he says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so our Lord is seen as this judge. And of course, in John 5, we see that all judgment is going to be given to the Son. And so here, our uh, founders, the writers of this document, the Declaration of Independence, are appealing to the supreme judge of the world, the supreme court of heaven, we might say. And they're appealing to him for the rectitude of our intentions. And I've discussed rectitude in the past. What does rectitude mean? Well, it means decency. It means goodness. It has a sort of a scope of meanings. But I think it really focuses on correctness righteousness, and we might even say integrity, those last three words, correctness, righteousness, and integrity of what? Their intentions, their actions. And in this, they now are saying, we are standing before this judge, this supreme judge of heaven, with our intentions. And we believe that they are correct, that they are righteous. They were relying on the Lord Jesus Christ for the righteousness or the intention, the integrity of their intentions. The intentions for what? It says, for the rectitude of our intentions do 
in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies. Notice again, it's the people. Solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved of all allegiances, all loyalty to the British crown, and that all political correctness, all political uh, connection, that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain, could have been political correctness, absolved as well, is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other things, all other acts and things, which independent states may have right do. Again, so they're declaring themselves free and independent states. And how were they going to accomplish that? I mean, it's one thing, as I said in the first service, to declare it. It's another thing to be able to accomplish it. Well, it was apparent that it was going to come by force of arms. And some might say, well, if it came by force of arms, then it wasn't by God. No, that's not true. God expects us to be willing to do what is necessary to accomplish his plan in his strength. And sometimes in this fallen world, it's going to be by force of arms. Then it says, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Divine providence here means that they recognized the sovereignty of God in human history. They were taking a position that they believed was biblically correct. In other words, this was not just a selfish desire. They believed that the position they were taking revealed biblical, or it was founded on biblical principles. And it says that they were relying on God to support their intentions as found in the Declaration of Independence. And of course, I believe we can find those same, that same understanding in the book of Psalm, Psalm 103, when we talk about God who is sovereign and God who shows compassion and God who shows his loyal faithfulness. And the colonists believed in that. God is the one who executes righteousness. He is the one who answers our prayers and blesses us. And so these men and their families, who had, I think, a profound faith in God, were placing their future fortunes in the hands of God. Now, I mentioned that I wanted to return to this thought that our founders believed in God the Creator. They talk about Him. They mention Him, owned by our Creator, endowed by our Creator. But there are many who don't believe that they really had that kind of understanding or belief. That they were really deists, probably agnostics, and even maybe atheists. Well, a deist in the purest sense of a deist, is someone who believes, it's very often described as the 
clockwork creation. That God created in a very rudimentary way the earth, the universe, and kick-started the process of evolution so that, yes, the existence, everything that came into existence, could have occurred over millions, billions, however long you need. But that's not what we see in our founders. John Hancock, for example, who was the first to sign the Declaration, who had been the presiding, <clears throat> the, the president of the Congress of Massachusetts, one year before he issued a, uh, one year before this, before he signed the Declaration, he issued a proclamation calling for a day of public humiliation, fasting and prayer. <clears throat> and he referred to that God who rules in the armies of heaven and without whose blessing the best human counsels are but foolishness and all created power is vanity. And so John Hancock recognized this creation, this endowed power. The same year, the Continental Congress also passed a stirring resolution expressing humble confidence in the mercies of the supreme and impartial God and ruler of the universe. George Washington, also a strong Bible-believing Christian and, I think, literal creationist. He says, among other things, a reasoning being would lose his reason in attempting to account for the great phenomena of nature had he not a supreme being to refer to. And well has it been said that if there had not been a God, if there had been no God, mankind would have been obligated to imagine one. In other words, just looking at nature brings us to the conclusion that there is a God. It's long been argued as to whether or not Thomas Jefferson and, of course, Benjamin Franklin were genuine Christians. But I don't think there's any doubt that both of them were committed creationists. You know, I do stop short of saying absolutely Thomas Jefferson was a believer. Only the Lord knows that. And the same with Benjamin Franklin, because we do not know whether they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and their Savior. We know they referred to him often. <clears throat> but Franklin is especially remembered for his stirring exhortation to the delegates to the Continental Convention in 1787 to pray for God's guidance and his blessing in the framing of our United States Constitution. He's asking for God's hand to guide them. That's not a deist. That's not a deist. James Madison then made the motion, seconded by Roger Sherman, to open all future sessions in prayer. And this was unanimously approved, approved by the delegates. God's resultant blessing is a matter of history. In his autobiography, Franklin wrote as follows, I never doubted, for instance, 
the existence of the deity, that he made the world and governed it by his providence. He believed in the creator. John Jay, the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court, in an address to the American Bible Society, of which he was then the president, can you imagine our Supreme Court justice, chief justice being the president of a Bible society somewhere? Would it be wonderful? He said, the Bible will also inform them that our gracious creator has provided for us a redeemer in whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, that this redeemer has made atonement for the sins of the whole world and has opened a way for our redemption and salvation. And those are remarkable. That's a remarkable testimony and really revelation for us. In fact, all the signers of the Declaration and the delegates of the Constitutional Convention, as well as the delegates to the various sessions of the Continental Congress, at least so far as we know, were men who believed in God. They truly believed in God. The two, for which we seem to have doubts, Franklin and Jefferson, reveal that they did believe in God. As a matter of fact, it was Thomas Jefferson, after he became president, that required church services to be held in the Capitol Rotunda. And he was disappointed when the services went less than a couple hours. He was looking for three or four hours worth. Why? Because he recognized the blessing of God in the nation to those who were obedient and those who worshipped him. But anyhow, they believed in the special creation of the world and mankind. Nearly all were members of Christian churches, and they believed the Bible to be the inspired word of God. In colonial times, we have a quote here from, or at least a reference, from a professor at Columbia University, a Dr. Lawrence uh, Kremen. He makes this commentary regarding the colonists and the Bible. He says that the Bible was the primary tool in the educational process. In fact, he says, the Bible was the single most primary source for the intellectual history of colonial America. Not just for our knowledge of the Bible, but for our intellectual history. From their knowledge of the Bible, a highly literate, creative people emerged. Their wise system of education was later replaced by a man-centered system, which has caused a steady decline in literacy and creativity. So, this professor at Columbia University, not a university that today is known for its respect for the Word of God, says that originally the colonists based their education on the Word of God. And because of that, a highly literate and creative people emerged. And when we took the Bible away from that system, we then began to see a steady decline in literacy and creativity. No wonder that the evolutionary historian, his name is Gilman Ostrander, he writes a book called The Evolutionary Outlook. He starts out by saying, the American nation has been founded by intellectuals who had accepted a worldview that was based upon biblical authority as well as Newtonian science. 
Well, Newton was a believer, and he reveals that throughout his work. They had assumed that God created the earth and all life upon it at the time of creation and had continued without change thereafter. In other words, it was created and it continues this same way. Adam and Eve were God's final creations and all of mankind has descended from them. Yes, that's precisely what they believed. And one last example. In a letter written by William Penn, he was, of course, uh, the very godly founder, we would say, of Pennsylvania. And he's writing a letter to the Indians offering to purchase the land from them, even though this very land was already given to him in a grant by the king. But when he comes to America, he's buying it. He's offering to buy the land from the Indians. He began his letter by saying, my friends, reference to the Indians, There is one great God and power that hath made the world and all things therein, to whom you and I and all people owe their being and well-being, and to whom you and I must one day give an account for all that we do in the world. And so these are the individuals who founded this nation. And God has truly shed his grace on this sweet land of liberty. We did not sing uh, My Country Tis of Thee. I thought that was going to be our last song. I misread the list. But it's in that song, the the last verse of which is a prayer. It's a prayer that is given by the author. And he says on page 695, in our hymnals. He describes the country in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then, in the last verse, he says, again, very similar to the Star-Spangled Banner, he gives credit, I guess you could say, but he recognizes God the Father, and he has a prayer. Our Father's God, our Father's God to thee, author of liberty, to thee we sing. And his petition, long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. Yes, he is the King of glory. He is our God. And as long as we recognize him as such and worship him as such, we will continue to be a blessed nation. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have a rich historical roots. Help us to study this. Help us to understand it. Help us to return to that firm understanding in our Creator and the fact that He has given us rights, rights that to us are unalienable. And that is by Him, by His support, by this, the providence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who is our Creator and our God and our Savior, that we have these rights and these privileges and this great nation. So, Father, we're thankful for the opportunity that we have to celebrate our independence, an independence that you prepared and have given to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.